Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message really blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions or want more information on our church, please visit www.theporchchurch.tv. That's not like fun to anybody. Right? So, statement of disclaimer, in case it wasn't obvious, we're not talking real eggs, right? That's clear to everybody in the room. Nod your head so I know that you're listening. But we were talking about, so how do we engage our neighbors, engage our kids? How do we kind of just have some fun with Easter? We came up with this idea of how can we be a blessing to our neighbors, to our neighborhood? And so we're challenging you to do just that, to go to the store, to buy uh, something. Maybe don't buy this bag. I know this is a really cute bag. Trista made me promise to say the word cute in relation to this bag. So I did my job. That's what happened, right? But we're just saying, thanks so much, right? So we're just saying, go buy a 12-pack of just the plastic eggs. Go buy a bag of candy, and then we're going to give you two copies of that form that you saw them paste on the door. And the idea is just to go and be a blessing to our neighbors, to, hey, say, we've been thinking about you, we care about you, and this Easter season, we just want to draw your attention to the fact that there's more going on than perhaps what you're normally exposed to in your world. Now, a lot of times churches use this as like their big invite campaign, hey, make sure you get people here, make sure you get people here. While we hope that people show up to church, really what we want to convey is that we love our neighbors, that we care about them, and that we want to be a blessing to their family, a blessing to their kids. And we want our kids to identify their friends, that they just want to be a blessing during this Easter. So choose a neighbor, go to the store, buy a 12-pack of eggs and some candy. While you're there, by the way, grab an extra bag or two of candy, because we're doing a massive Easter egg hunt uh, at 10 a.m. here on Easter Sunday. Uh, And then go and egg your neighbors. Have some fun with it. Maybe record a video, maybe tag them on Facebook. But the idea is not only that we would be a blessing, but we hope as you read through this form that they're invited to do the same, that they're invited to choose a different neighbor, a different friends, and just be a blessing for them during this Easter season. So we hope that that's something easy that we can do uh, to be just a blessing in our neighborhoods, a blessing to our friends, and hopefully to have some fun while doing it. Does it sound like a good idea? overwhelmingly excited. I'm so glad to hear that. So in order, (laughs) a couple of you are excited about that's great. So in order to get us in the game, uh, I decided that we'd start today. Does that sound all right? So uh, look under your seat. Some of you, I gave you a little bit of help and the masking tape is sticking out, but there's a dozen Easter eggs hidden. So some of you get candy this morning. Uh, You're my favorites, just so you know. And uh, I need you to open it now because there's one of you that has a little slip of paper in it uh, that just says hashtag egged. So open your egg quick. You don't have to eat the candy if you don't want it, but somebody has the egg that says hashtag egg, and I need you to come up because you don't have to go to the store. I just have yours already done here in my cute Easter bunny bag, right? Anybody find it? Somebody in this section, maybe? Maybe like the third row or fourth row back and five or, I feel like I need the little card from uh, Johnny Carson, right? Fifth or sixth row, somebody over there? Anybody? Nobody? Do we have one? No piece of paper? Somebody, I think it's in a white egg over there in a piece. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is part of the rehearsal that we didn't run through, so I've got as much time as you do. Uh, we'll just uh, carry this out. Any, anybody? Or I'm just going to pick somebody at rent, maybe not. I'll just leave this over here when y'all get it sorted out. And you can just, you just put that right there. And somebody come and, come and steal it. Hey, that worked well, right? Uh, so we are... <laughs> That's the Easter challenge, guys. Your kids are going to hear about it. So when they come streaming out of their classrooms and when they say, hey, we're going to do, did we find it? Thank you. Yeah, send Emma up and she can grab the little bag. 
Um, when your friends, when your kids, we pick up your kids, hopefully they might say, hey, we're supposed to go egg John's house. And now you have context for that conversation, so you're not going. What are we talking about in Sunday school? Uh, we're talking about this. So we're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. And uh, again, if people feel invited to come to church, that's great. If they want to join us for the Easter egg hunt, phenomenal. Really, we just want to be a blessing, and we hope that that blessing spills over uh, into our neighborhoods and into our significant relationships. So uh, join us in doing that. Make sure that you take a picture, take a video, post hashtag egged, tag the porch church, and uh, we're going to tell some stories as well, uh, just about how we can make some fun this Easter season. So with that being said, let's jump in here. We are in week four. This is our last series of Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. Has this been a good series for you? It's very reassuring to my ego. Thanks so much. Glad that uh, this series has been meaningful, right? We've been talking about relationships and cookies because... Why not, right? So we've been talking about Oreos, and we've been talking about how there's always a better half, right? Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in an Oreo cookie, whatever it is, right? There's always this better half. And we've been using the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and kind of their whole uh, interaction, their marriage, their early life together. And we've been using that as kind of a context to have this larger conversation about our own relationships, about the pieces that we bring into it. So uh, I read this quote this week, and I just thought that it was kind of an illustration of what we've been talking about. The quote went something like this. It says, a strong marriage rarely has two strong people at the same time. It is a husband and wife who take turns being strong for each other in the moment when the other feels weak. Right, what that said to me is there's always a better half, right? No matter where we're at in our relationship, there's somebody stepping up. There's somebody who needs the extra hand. There's somebody that we can move ourselves for. And so we've been having this conversation about Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And today we're on our last character of the story. We're on the character of Jacob. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 30. We're going to finish up our story today looking at the last character of our story. You may remember that we've looked at Rachel and Leah up until this point. We saw the, the desperation in Leah, right, that caused her to do crazy things like steal your sister's husband. Uh, and in Rachel taught us, that's funny, I'll, you'll catch up later. And Rachel taught us that we can only find contentment in Christ, that that's the only place where we can find true satisfaction and fulfillment. And so today we're going to talk about Jacob. And Jacob is how do we say this lovingly? An incredibly messed up character in the story, right? We've mentioned that his name means heel grabber, which became synonymous with this idea of deception, of being a liar. And largely throughout the story, we see him live up to his name, right? He convinces his brother to sell him his birthright for a pot of soup, which is weird, right? He goes along with his mother's plan to dress up like that same brother and to steal his father's blessing from him which then causes him to flee for his life. That's how he winds up at his uncle Laban's farm. And this is where our story picked up. But we're not quite done there, right? After he's worked 14 years in total for his two wives, Leah and Rachel, he comes up with a plan. And surprise, surprise, it's maybe not the most honest of plan, right? Maybe not the best business plan. Maybe not the most God-honoring plan. But Jacob had been serving Laban. He'd been a shepherd. He'd been caring for his sheep. He was very, very familiar with his flocks. He was very, very familiar with where the strong sheep came from. And as Laban's herd increased in number and in health, Jacob was reminded that, hey, he's good at this, right? He's good at his job. After 14 years, with literally nothing to show for it but two desperate housewives, he decides to make a life transition, now you're catching on, to care for his 11 children. So he tells Laban, hey, I'm leaving, I'm going to go and kind of do my own thing. And Laban kind of realizes, hey, I'm losing my cash cow here, right? I'm losing the thing that's been making me money, so he begs Jacob to stay. 
Jacob says, fine, but I get my cut from here on out. And this is where his deception begins. He tries to give Laban the better end of the deal. He says, hey, you get to keep all the white, spotless, pure sheep. You get to keep the best of the best. In this culture, in this society, those would have been the the most prized lambs with the pristine coats. And he says, I'll take all the speckled and spotted ones. I'll take all the ones with weaker outside appearance. Sounds like a good deal, right? Laban thinks so, and so they shake on it. But you've got to remember who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Jacob. So here's how the story plays out. We're in Genesis 30, verse 37. It says, Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and he made white strips on them by peeling the bark back and exposing the white inner wood on the branches. Think, um, think like sharp, right? Think like whittling. He's become sharp. They become things that would poke into, right, the skin of the lambs. Let's keep reading. Then he peeled and he placed and peeled the branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked and spotted or speckled. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but he made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself, and he did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place these branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he did not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban, and the strong ones all went to Jacob." In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous. He came to own his own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Right? Do you see what happened? He uses his knowledge of Laban's flock, of shepherding, of doing his job, and he turns the tables. He says, you get all the pure white spotless ones, that's fine, but I get all the streaked and speckled ones. And then he kind of stacks the deck, right? He puts these branches in there so that as the young are born and as the strong, as the strong sheep mate, that all of them then go to populate his herd. And meanwhile, all the weak ones, all the ones that he wants nothing to do with, do with all the ones that he kind of sees and surveys, he goes, yeah, you can, you can go ahead and keep those ones. And so in this way, Jacob kind of usurps all that he's worked for from Laban. This is not nice business practice, right? We all understand that, right? This is deceptive. This is uh, stealing by and large. This is not acceptable. And yet here we see Jacob engaged in these habits. So we're going to hit fast forward on Jacob's life because kind of the events that, can, that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks and the events as they play out in Scripture go a little bit quickly here. But the point is that we're going to illustrate an important principle that in our relationships, in, the, in our marriages, in our close relationships, no matter what they are for you, that, that we unfortunately bring ourselves into the equation. We bring our whole selves, warts and all, the things that we do right, and also the things that we do wrong. And so to illustrate this point, uh, I brought along some friends today. Uh, you may have noticed them by now, but I'd like to introduce you to the official uh, Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. I think we've got a nice picture for you up there. Um, my wife did this in three minutes. It would have taken me three hours. It would not look, look nearly as good. 
All right, but this is Mr. and Mrs. Betterhalf. They've been keyed into the sermon series. They've loved it. Uh, it's been a challenge for their relationship, and so they feel like they're, they're ready to move on. And just like any relationship, right, they, they come into it with their own selves. One has blue beads, one has pink beads. And so as they go along throughout life, right, they just kind of, they just kind of enjoy life cohabitating together, and they move around, and life is smooth for the first, like, month of their dating relationship, Right. Then they get married, something happens, and eventually, this is true for you, it's true for me, and of course it's true for our categorical people here, Mr. and Mrs. Betterhalf, eventually they find themselves bumping into each other, right? And like you and I, anytime we bump into each other, those can be a bit, um, a bit tense situations, right? They're maybe a little bit chaotic. Uh, there tends to be some spillage, right, that comes from those conversations. So it looks something like, you know, uh, they're going along, and then all of a sudden, uh, there's just a little bit of conflict. Oops. Right? So they're, they're going along throughout life, and eventually there's just this, there's either bump in the road, and they, and they just bump into each other, and all this stuff comes spewing all over the place. Sorry if you sat in the front rows, I should have warned you, right? But they, they go along throughout life, and they bump into each other, and then they get angry, and they get upset, because I didn't know you had an anger problem. If I'd known you had an anger problem, I never would have started dating you in the first place. And she runs off to talk to her sister or mom or whoever she goes to talk to, and Mr. Betterhalf goes, well, I didn't know that you were going to overreact so much. We were just having a conversation. I didn't know that you were going to behave that way. Actually, you bumped into me, so isn't this all your fault? And Mr. Betterhalf just goes, nowhere, right? Nobody knows where men goes. They just disappear somewhere, and then they come back later, right? But then they come back together, and they have this conversation, and they go, this is all your fault, right? If you hadn't bumped me, then all these blue beads wouldn't have come spilling out all over the place, right? And she says, well, if you hadn't bumped me, then all these pink beads wouldn't be coming out all over the place. The problem is that you bumped me, you're the problem in this scenario. Everything was just fine. Everything was all well and contained. Everything was already in here, but it wasn't coming out until you bumped me. These are the conversations that we have. If you haven't had those relationships or those conversations, chances are you haven't been in a relationship long enough, right? Because if you've ever been in any significant relationship where you care about the other person, all of a sudden we get into spats and arguments and things happen that fundamentally weren't there before. Sometimes it results in exploding. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's misunderstanding and hurt or disloyalty or feeling betrayed. Whatever those seasons are in your life. But we tend to come back to the conversations with this same point, right? Well, if you hadn't bumped me, if you hadn't infringed upon my rights, if you hadn't disrespected me or said something mean to me, then I wouldn't have blown up. I wouldn't have acted angrily. I wouldn't have done this thing. In other words, the blue beads wouldn't have come out of me if it weren't for you. And she says, well, the pink beads wouldn't have come out of me if it weren't for you. And as we wrap up today, as we talk about this series, Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, I just want to land on one simple truth, right? The reason this whole mess happens, the reason why beads go flying all over the place and we bump into one each other, the reason why pink beads come out of her and why blue beads come out of him is simply because that's what's in there. The bump may have caused it, but the, the blue beads were already inside Mr. Betterhalf. The pink beads were already inside Mrs. Betterhalf. And so we, while we want to blame the bump, while we want to blame the catalyst that makes all this junk come out of us, the reality is 
that what's inside of us is already inside of us. See, when we bump into someone, whether a coworker, a parent, or a spouse, what comes out is what we want to blame on the other person. This is your fault. This wouldn't have come out if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't blow up if you would just listen. Well, I would listen if you weren't yelling, and on and on it spins. And we think, you think, I think that the problem is the bump. We think that the problem is the person on the other side. We think that that's the catalyst for all of these things happen. But when someone bumps us, all it does is reveal what's actually inside of us already. Jesus has a profound statement as he's talking with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. And he simply says this, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks, what comes out of our hearts is what our hearts are already full of. Translation is that the reason that blue beads come out of him and the reason that pink beads come out of her is because that's what's in there. The bump may have caused the overflow, but the reason that those behaviors overflowed is because that's what's in there. That's what's in our hearts. And in the moments of our lives when we get bumped, what comes out of us is what's inside of us. We see this in the story of Jacob, right? He's a deceiver by nature. This is his character. This is who he is. It's his namesake. And so when he gets bumped, all of a sudden deception comes out of him. We see this happen with his brother when he steals his birthright. We saw it happen with his father when he tricks him and dresses up like his brother. We see it with his uncle in today's story. We've seen it with his spouses. We've seen it with his children. And while we might be tempted to say the same things to ourselves that Jacob might say, well, it's not about me me, it's because of all these people bumping into me. I'm not bad. It's what's happening to me. The reality is what comes out of Jacob is what's inside of Jacob. And so what scripture says, what Jesus says is that no, it's not the bump. No, it's not the outside situation. It's the inside situation of our hearts that comes out because that's what's already inside of you. It's already present on the inside. Now it's just out there in plain view for everyone to see. So when it comes to our significant relationships, to our conflicts and bumps that we experience, we actually only highlight what's wrong within us. So if we're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, that means bringing our best self out and into our relationships. And if the bumps that we will inevitably hit will expose what's on the inside of us, then our relationships are far less about finding the perfect person on the outside of us. It's far less than finding our soulmate, than finding that person who is the perfect compatibility to us. And it's far more about finding and refining and revealing our own character that exists on the inside of our hearts. Right? Really, to be the better half, the best half in our relationships, it takes a long, hard look at cleaning out what's going on inside of our hearts. Not blaming the other person, the external circumstances, not, call, not saying that the bump is the reason, but owning the fact that what comes out of me is actually what lives inside of me. Right? See, problems in our marriages, I, I think, tend to function like mirrors. Too often we think of conflicts or bumps as doors, right? These are obstacles, things to be overcome, obstacles preventing or stopping us from living out our hopes and dreams, from achieving all that we'd want to hear. And if you go through your life, your marriage, thinking that conflicts are doors, problems to be avoided, then you're going to be in for a world of hurt. 
See, if a door is, is a blockade designed to keep something or someone in or out, then when we bump into each other, we see and experience that conversation in reaction into that door. We see that reaction, this explosion, as a barricade to the full expression of our love in our relationships. So consequently, if it's a door, if conflicts are the thing to avoid, to keep each other out, then we go through life just circling, never bumping into each other making sure that we don't have conflict, making sure that the other person always wins. And that feels really, really good for a really, really long time because we're not exploding. We're not making the mess. There's nothing coming out. Everything's just cool, calm, and collected under wraps. And so long as we don't bump, we're all okay. Conflict is a door. It's something to stay closed, not something to walk through. It's something that we want to keep out of the way. But I think that the reality is that the longer that we stay together, those beads still live inside of us. And so eventually, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in your first year of marriage, maybe not till after you have kids, maybe not till the kids are out of the house, but eventually if we don't address what's going on inside of us, the scripture still rings true. That what's inside our hearts eventually is what comes outside of us. So my idea for today, my presupposition is what if our conflicts aren't doors? What if they're actually mirrors? What if they're mirrors into our own hearts and souls? What if the conflicts that we bump into aren't things to be avoided? What if what's really happening is as we bump into our spouse, as we bump into our coworkers, as we bump into any significant situation, that the problem isn't the bump, it isn't something to be avoided. Really, it's an opportunity for self-reflection. When we bump into, for the first time, everything that's on the inside and hidden finally comes out and we can see and inspect it. Too often, though, we're surveying the crash scene, looking at all the pink beads, looking at all our spouse's beads and going, man, that's sure an ugly bead, right? That's sure a gross thing. I didn't know that about you. But the reality is that the beads that are on the outside are now an opportunity not for us to nitpick the person on the other side of the collision, but to be a mirror to ourselves. Do you see bumps? Do you see conflicts? Do you see opportunities within your marriages, things to be avoided so that we all just keep going around in perfect harmony, nothing spilling, nothing coming out? Or do you recognize that when the crash happens, when the bump happens, that it's an opportunity for self-reflection, for perhaps God to do some work? Do you see bumps in your marriage as a door or as a mirror? I'm a big fan of a quote from an author by the name of Gary Smalley who writes a wonderful book called Sacred Marriage. And the tagline is really the largest thing that's stuck out to me for years and years and years since reading this book. And the, the tagline of his book, Sacred Marriage, is simply this. What if marriage isn't designed to make you happy? What if it's designed to make you holy? What if marriage isn't there for your happiness, simply for your pleasure, simply to enjoy this life together? Those are all products of it. They're a piece to it, right? Nobody wants to be miserable in their relationship. But what if the goal, what if God's purpose for instituting marriage in our lives is to be a refining work? Maybe it's a grace to bump into our spouse and to have our beads come out and to be able to have a conversation with another human being that goes, man, why did that come out of me? I don't know what's going on with me. I just got so angry when you said that. I, I think that it was because of this issue or because of growing up, this always happened in my household. What if the bumps, what if the conflicts, what if our marriage relationship isn't designed to keep us moving together? What if the point is the bump? What if the point is these beads that now we get to survey the crash and go, man, I wonder what about me made that crash happen? 
I wonder what that reveals about my character. I wonder what that says about what God's doing within me. What if our conflicts are a mirror to where we can just stare at ourselves and go, what about me is in that situation? What about me do, do I need to own in the midst of that? Not looking at her, not looking at him, not going, man, if only those things would be cleaned up. I didn't know you were like that. I don't like that side of you. Let's never have that conversation again. What if instead our marriage, our relationships, what if the bumps are a gift given for our sanctification? A way to look within ourselves at what's going on inside our hearts. What if it's a gift from God, a mirror to expose us to what's really going on? See, I think that would change how we look at our little spats, right? Instead of blaming or waiting on the other person to apologize, what if we said, huh, what about that bump was me? Where do I need to grow from that conversation? What came out of me and how can I address that issue? What if we viewed those conversations as mirrors into the condition of our souls? See, I, I tend to be a pretty selfless person, which is easy to say as a pastor, right? If I'm like, I'm super selfish, y'all would be like, sweet, I'm out of here, right? I tend to be a pretty selfless person, except at home, right? I'm pretty selfish when it comes to my wife, when it comes to my time, when it comes to her making sure that I have dinner, making sure that everything's prepared, my clothes are washed. I tend to be really selfish in my marriage relationship at home. If you don't believe me, just ask Melissa. She'll tell you, I'm sure. And nowhere does this issue come up for me more than when I get face-to-face with myself in the mirror, right? Nothing has refined my selfish nature like having a spouse with some health problems. I've talked about this intermittently. Melissa, my wife, has some health problems, and all of a sudden, she's sick. She's in pain, right? Sometimes she literally can't move, sometimes for days on end, and that's so frustrating, So frustrating for her, so frustrating for me. But the reality that I've learned is that it's far less about her in that situation than it is about me. Because she would rather not be in pain. She would rather not be in bed. She would rather be up and cooking and being a part of the family. But when those bumps happen, what happens to me? I get selfish. This isn't fair. Got to do everything around here. Can you believe it? All those stories come in, right? Which, because she has a medical condition, I actually think it's easier for me than perhaps it is for you. Because in those moments, I'm either a horrible person, right, or the worst husband ever, neither of which are good for my ego. So what do I do when my wife is sick? The only answer is that I have to become the best half of myself that I can possibly be. I have to step into that situation and go, what about me can't deal with this fact? What about me is in this relationship? Because the bump is everything that she doesn't want to have happen either, but it's a mirror to myself because she didn't cause this. She doesn't want it any more than I do. And if I'm frustrated, it isn't at her. It may be at the illness, but it's not at her faults. And so when my blue beads come flying out after a long day at work or a particularly dry season, if I treat it like a door, if I treat it like something to be avoided, then we miss the God-given opportunity to be refined in the midst of what's going on. Having a mirror to my soul has been incredibly beneficial because it allows me to go, what about this is me? What about this do I need to own? Where is this my opportunity to pour into my wife, to pour into my family? Because it's not fair for me to simply go, man, well, I'd sure like a break. I wouldn't mind a day or an evening in bed. The reality is that she doesn't have that choice too often. And what that means is that when we have conflict around this issue, it's not about her or her behaviors or things that she can control. The bump is about me and what's inside of me coming out. 
So when we have this conversation, when we do these things, let me just be open and honest, right? It's hard to look in the mirror. Physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever category you want to put in there, right? It's hard to come face to face with yourself and deal with the reality of what you see on the other side. It's much easier to blame the bump. It's much easier to blame the external circumstances. It's much easier to say, well, if you wouldn't, then I wouldn't, and spin round and round. But I think that the reality is that many of our marriage problems are really just a mirror to the problems of our hearts. I think it's a gift from God. So my challenge to us today is if you want to live happily ever after, if you want to be Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, then you've got to recognize that you bring yourself into the equation, your whole self, your best self and your worst self. And you've got to trust that your spouse is bringing in their same pieces. But the reality is that when we have these bumps, these conflicts, they expose us for who we are. And that's not the other person's fault, but it is an opportunity for us to engage in conversation and go, hey, what about me came out there? What about me do we need to have this conversation? And remember our friend Jacob? He gets to have this conversation in a really neat way, right? See, Jacob was so messed up that he needed two mirrors to fix him, right? That's why he had Rachel and Leah. And if we dive into Jacob, what we actually see is that his desperation to be accepted is reflected in Leah, And we see the drive for contentment and the drive to achieve, even to the point of stealing. We see that reflected in his wife, Rachel. And all along these bumps in the road with his mother and his brother and his uncle and his dad, Jacob is being refined, right? His core is being exposed. He's just bump after bump after bump. And we see all of these beads that come flying out of him. Right, and so Jacob leaves to return to Laban. He returns home to see his twin brother Esau. You remember the guy that he tricked, stole his birthright, and wanted to kill him? Yeah, that guy, right? So he's going to come face to face with this, and Jacob has a, has a soul-searching moment, right? He's been refined through all of these relationships. All these beads keep coming out, and he has to come face to face with this brother that he cheated and the fact that he's living with stolen flocks and wives that he was tricked into marrying for working for 14 years. It's all going to be out there. What do you think he's thinking in that moment? See, I think he's kind of maybe staring into a mirror, Everything's kind of come out, and there's this poignant moment in Scripture. There's this opportunity where Jacob sends all of his earthly possessions across the river. He sends his wives, his 11 children. He sends all of his flocks, everything that he owns, and he just kind of stays back. Camping, right? Being quiet for a night. Maybe staring into the mirror of everything that kind of now exists. And as Jacob approaches Esau, right, he hits all the bumps and all the bruises. And I think that what we actually see here is a really beautiful thing. See, I think that all of these beads that get refined through all the bumps eventually just come pouring out of Jacob. Be careful leaving today. (laughs) Shuffle your feet, right? And Jacob finds himself empty. And he's staring at the one side of the Jordan River. And he finds himself with nothing left within him. Everything is out there. Everything has been laid bare. And then something weird begins to happen as Jacob is there soul-searching, empty, wondering where is God in the midst of this? How is this whole situation going to work out? Is Esau going to kill him on sight? Is there a moment of restoration? Can he act for, for, ask for forgiveness? Can he maybe escape just one more time? Can he be deceptive in some way, somehow? Then all of a sudden, Scripture literally just turns on a dime, and he says, then a man showed up, and they started wrestling. 
which is fairly normal male behavior in case you're unfamiliar, right? They just show up and they just start wrestling, right? And they're in a, they're in a dead heat, right? They wrestle all night, Scripture says, and nobody's winning. And finally, the man, which is all that it refers to this other person as, says he wretches Jacob's hip, right? Which means like he, he touches his hip and either he bruises him, he injures him, maybe something supernatural happens, right? We don't exactly know, but they're stuck in this position. They can't win, and no matter what happens, Jacob isn't letting go, and the person, the man that he's wrestling, isn't giving up either. And then this story happens. This is Genesis 32 verse 26. It says, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Interesting conversation. Then the man asked him, what is your name? What's your name? And Jacob, an- Jacob he answered, What's your name, Jacob, he answered, right? We come to find out that this isn't just a man that he's wrestling, but that it's actually God, right? And God doesn't need to know Jacob's name. God already knows his name. He knows why he's set up. But in the midst of this question, in the midst of this conversation, Jacob is emptied of himself. He's got nothing left to hide. He's been refined through relationships. He's been staring into the mirror of all the choices that he's made in his life. He's completely empty, completely open to what God has to say. And in that moment, God says, who are you? What is your identity? What is your name? And Jacob says, I'm I'm a deceiver. I'm, I'm a heel grabber. I've looked in the mirror long enough to own who I am, and I've sent everything that I've achieved away, and all I am is what's left over. I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheat. I'm a thief. I'm a swindler. Jacob owns this conversation with God, and because he's now empty, God is able then to step in and to fill in the gap. Then the man, remember who is God, said, your name will no longer be Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, but will instead be Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Israel means wrestles with God. And this is an aha moment in the story, right? Jacob isn't wrestling a person, but God. And in that wrestling, God removes the blue beads and now emptied of his self-reflection, Jacob is filled with a mirror. Water is reflective, right? It reflects the true character of a man. If you've ever stared into a stream, you see your reflection on a clear, pristine day. But when we're filled with our own stuff, then we can't be filled with the mirror of who God is. And God says, no, you're no longer Jacob. Instead, you're going to be Israel. Instead, I'm going to fill you with my presence. You get to be a reflective person, a reflective opportunity here. And he fills him up with his name instead of his own. Here's why this is powerful. Whatever you're filled with, whatever's on the inside, eventually comes outside, right? When we're filled with blue stuff, pink stuff, what comes out is our own personal interpretations. But when we've been emptied and then refilled with what God has for us, now instead of being filled with our own junk and our own stuff, instead we're filled with the very presence and the peace and the purpose of God. What happens now when we bump into somebody? What happens now When conflict arises, now because we've been refined through this process, emptied of ourselves, when bump happens, still conflict, still beads, but now there's some God in the midst of it. Now there's something that isn't me. Now I bring in a different relationship into the conflict and I get to go, What about this is me, right? I've used the mirror, I've stared into my soul long enough to refine my character. But where's God in the midst of this? What might God be saying? What might God be saying through me? What might God be saying through you? 
How can God come into this situation and reform us? See, too often God uses the most broken pieces of our relationships with him. He uses Jacob's very identity, this fact that he's a deceiver, his very worst self. And that's the moment that God comes into and goes, yeah, but I can change that. I can use that. I can tell a different story with that. And all of your conflicts, all of this explosion, the gigantic mess that I've made today can all be about God's refining, defining, and reflecting work in our hearts and in our lives. But here's the reality. Before we can be filled with God, we have to be emptied of ourselves. We have to do the hard work of staring in the mirror. We can't blame our problems externally. We have to look square in the face of ourselves and go, what about this is me? What about this is the place where God is working to refine and redefine me? So if you want to be Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, if you want to have that time, space, and opportunity to where God can fill you, then you've got to recognize that you bring your whole self into the relationship You bring your best self, you bring your worst self, you bring the pieces and the places and the opportunities where God most wants to work. And as he does this refining work within you, he doesn't just want to empty you, but he wants to fill you with his presence so that as you go back into your marriage, into your work, into your conflicts, that you don't just spill blue and pink beads, but that you actually spill the spirit of God with the people around you. So you can't be your best self because you've got junk inside of you. I've got junk inside of me. Every person has junk inside of them, in and around us. Only by emptying ourselves through staring in the mirror, which we're blessed to have in our spouse, do we get the opportunity to empty ourselves so that we can be filled with God. So if you want to be Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, if you want to have that kind of relationship, it starts with a long, hard look in the mirror. It starts with an opportunity to come face-to-face with our own idiosyncrasies, the thing that God most wants to work, most wants to fill through us so that those things can spill out of us. But make no mistake, it's hard. It's difficult. It's a whole lot more difficult than just blaming the other person, than just letting blue and pink beads spill all over the place. But the reality is that only by going through that refining process will we find ourselves filled with the presence and the nature of God. And that will bless and encounter and impact our relationship with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers, with everyone around us. I can think of no more appropriate way to end this series than at the table. At communion, at a place where God's presence is represented and where God says, hey, this isn't about perfection, right? It isn't about never having conflict. It's about presence. It's about coming to terms with the end of ourselves and having an honest conversation about where we're insufficient, where we need God to fill in the gaps. Communion is about presence and recognizing that we need God's help and that Jesus came to give us everything that we need, whether it's for our marriages, whether it's for our conflicts at home, whether it's for our very salvation, God comes in and he fills in the gap. He fills us with his spirit. And so as we partake in communion today, I want you to be reminded of the fact that Jesus came for you. He came to fill you with his presence and with his spirits. He came to help you go through a process of getting rid of all the junk that lives inside of us and having an opportunity to then be filled with his Holy Spirit, with the very presence of Jesus Christ. And so as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're reminded of Jesus' proximity to us. That in the midst of our marriages, in the midst of our relationships, that Jesus is there present with us.
We're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating just a normal meal with his disciples, and he took some bread that was ordinary. It wasn't special. It was just sitting on the table, and he, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. He said similarly that this is my blood picking up just wine that was already on the table. It represents a new covenant, a new promise. It represents a filling of my spirit within your hearts and within your lives. All of you drink from it. Quick disclaimer. We here at the Porch Church, we offer open communion, which means you don't have to be a member here. You can be a first-time guest. We don't care. We do expect that you are on a process, on a journey with Jesus Christ, whether you confess him as Lord and Savior or whether by this act you are submitting yourself to his work and will in your life, then you're welcome at this table. If this is a process for you, you're welcome at this table. But the opportunity is to come face to face with not only the mirror of our spouses, but the mirror of a God, of a King, of a Jesus who came to show us the way to refine ourselves, to be refined by him. So as you come up, I'm going to encourage you to stay away from this area. We've got two side rows here, so I'm going to say these two rows come front and center here. You're going to walk up to the table, around to the wall, and come back in on the outside of your section. If you're here, outside of that section there. If you're in these two sections, same story. Avoid this row. Come up through here. Walk through the seats to this row. Walk over to this table, go out to the wall, enter in from the opposite side of your sections. If I could get a couple of you to help me get the marbles that are in the direct line of path, I, uh, I didn't think they'd roll that far, but hey, conflict goes a little bit further than we think it does sometimes. You're invited to take this moment to come, to let it be a mirror to yourself, to confess to God whatever you need to confess, the areas of your heart and of your soul where you're going, man, I just need to see myself a little bit clearer. You're invited to partake perhaps with your spouse as you renew a covenant to fight for each other, to bring your best self into this relationship, to ask for forgiveness. You're invited to come and to be in the presence of one who knows you fully. He knows your name. He knows everything that's on the inside of us. And he loves you anyway. He cares for you to the depths of your soul. And he has a plan and a purpose to redeem and restore all that's broken in our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, conflict is messy. We see beads and marbles and just junk strewn all about this place and it reminds us of the very depths in which conflict affects and harms our soul. God, we're reminded that in the midst of that, that you didn't create us to avoid those things, but you actually made these refining tools in our relationships to be what exposes those internal realities and makes them come out on the outside. So God, help us where we choose to avoid and instead allow us the blessing of the mirrors in our relationships that expose what's on the inside of us. God, we give you permission. We ask you, please refine us. Please help us. Please give us direction and insight and wisdom because we cannot do this on our own. And God, as we now move into a time of being at your table, of being in your presence, would you convict us of our own areas where we haven't willfully submitted ourselves to the process, where we've avoided, where we've blamed somebody else, where we've blamed the bump, the problems, the conflicts in our life. God, and would you instead help us to remove everything that hinders your work in our lives and simply confess that we need you. 
that we want you, that we desire to be filled with your spirit, to be a carrier of your presence into all of our significant relationships, into all of the spheres of our world, and yes, even into our marriages and our relationships. God, thank you for the gift of a spouse that refines us, and while it may not feel that way in the moment, God, we're grateful that it is something you've given to us to get better, to be exposed to what's really going on inside our hearts. And God, as we partake now, would your spirit and your presence do the same? Would it convict us of sin? Would it remind us of the places where we are unholy? Would it fill us up with your very presence and word this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. It is in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit we pray all these things and all God's kids say. Go.